Hello, hello, hello. Greetings of goodness and all that good stuff to you. And welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson, and it is good to be with you as always. Today we are going to continue with part three of what will likely be four episodes of the podcast on the attributes of God using the Precept Ministries Genesis Bible Study. We're in the last section of Genesis on the life of Joseph, and we're in a part of the Bible study that goes through 24 attributes of God. These are both his characteristics as well as his moral attributes. Now, as I've said in the previous two episodes, this does not mean that there are only 24 characteristics of God. I don't know if this is an exhaustive list or not. It could be, but maybe it's not. I don't know. I didn't go through myself from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21 and look to see if they covered every single attribute of God that I could possibly find. But if it's not an exhaustive list, it's certainly very, very detailed and good and whatever, which is why we're trying to take four episodes to go through it, because it would take almost four hours to go through it, or at least three probably, to go through all 24 attributes that they cover here and give each attribute of God the time it deserves. If I were to just start at the beginning and go all the way to the end without stopping. So we're not going to do that. We're going to continue doing this in four parts. I've been doing six attributes a day, uh, six attributes of God a day. We Part one and part two are on Spotify and are on Anchor for the podcast. This is part three. So again, we're looking at God's moral attributes here. The first of the six that we are going to look at today, and this would actually be number 13 on the list of 24, but it's the first one we're looking at today, is the graciousness of God. God is gracious. And God's graciousness refers to the fact that God extends favor toward people in spite of our sin. God extends favor toward people in spite of our sin. That's his graciousness. And the first verse we're going to look at in relation to that is Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is when the Lord, well, here, rather than me talking about it, we'll just, we'll just listen to it. One passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. So this is a pretty good synopsis of both of those sides of God that I spent a lot of time talking about at the beginning of this, and that is the, the grace and mercy of God and the wrath, holiness, justice of God 
he talks about his mercy and the fact that he's not going to let the guilty go free. And he doesn't let the guilty go free unless their penalty has been paid. And the only one that was able to do that, of course, is Jesus Christ, which he did. And so now all we have to do is accept him and accept that pardon that he purchased for us on the cross. And God can then be merciful and forgive us. If we don't, then he's not going to overlook our guilt and our sin. We're going to pay the full price for it. It's not his fault if we don't accept his means of salvation and justification for or on our benefit or on our behalf. Pardon me. The next verse we're going to look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 9. Again, that's 2 Chronicles chapter 30. In verse 9. Trying to get it here. Hang on. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him so that's pretty straightforward you know god will allow you to be taken captive then his nation to be taken captive to be dealt with harshly by their captors but if they would turn back to the lord then he would cause them to be merciful to them and return them back to the land it's all predicated on what we do with God as far as what happens with us as is seen here the graciousness of God is seen even though he had every right to cast off this nation forever in his grace he decided not to do that all we have to do is accept that grace and apply it to our own lives the next verse here is Luke chapter 2, and that's Luke chapter 2, and verse number 40. This is about Jesus as a child. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So the grace of God was upon Jesus even as a child, even as a, well, say his this would have been his 13th birthday. It says he was fully 12 years old, which means his 13th birthday, which most likely would have been, you know, his bar mitzvah age. Uh, from that, you know, he was filled with the grace of God even then, not just as an adult when he was baptized by John the Baptist, but even in his interactions with the religious leaders as a child and as a very, very young adult. He was... He wowed them, and the grace of God was on him even then. Now we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. And in this passage, Paul is talking about his thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh, a lot of people say, well, we don't know what that is. God doesn't tell us. Even though 
it says uh, right in verse 7 what it is. It's a messenger of Satan. So it's a demonic spirit that was sent to buffet him. It was a demonic spirit <laughs> that was personal. It wasn't some physical affliction. It wasn't a thorn. You know, he didn't have a splinter that he couldn't get rid of. The thorn in the flesh is clearly laid out here in verse 7. And well, we don't know what a messenger of Satan is. Yes, you do. It's a, it's a demon. Right, verse 7. Here we go. I was going to just do verse 9, but since this is one of those things that bugs me so much when all these Christians say, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh is. Well, it says it right here. Verse 7. We're going to go from verse 7 all the way to ver through verse 10 where it talks about this thorn in the flesh, even though that wasn't the point that I was trying to make. I'm on it now, so here we go. And, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul says here, you know, he's been given so many supernatural revelations. In fact, earlier in the chapter here, he's talking about being taken to heaven in a fashion very similar to a message I just heard Jesse Duplantis give about his uh, trip to heaven. But he was very, um, and he talked, and he, he was given all these revelations from God. Paul's words became God's words. I mean, Paul's words in the New Testament, the letters he wrote, became God's words as, and it became God's written revelation to us, but he took Paul's words and made them his own as an eternal message for all people and for all, for the church and for all time. And yet, and, and so because of that, he said that to keep him from becoming arrogant or prideful, basically, to keep him from getting the big head, if you will, a thorn in the flesh was given to him, a messenger of Satan, a demonic spirit, to buffet him, lest he should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, concerning the demonic spirit, Paul pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. And the Lord said to him, His grace was sufficient for Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's what the Lord replied to him. Therefore, Paul says, Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. That doesn't mean that the infirmities were the thorn in the flesh, because it says in verse 7 and 8 what the thorn in the flesh is. It's the messenger of Satan. It's a demonic spirit. But he says because that made him, the, the, the attacks of the demonic spirit weakened him, Paul chose to boast in those infirmities because Paul because Jesus said that his or that his strength would be made perfect in Paul's weaknesses. So then he goes on to talks about how he takes pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. Now 
That doesn't mean that the infirmities or the reproaches or the needs or the persecutions or the distresses were the thorn in the flesh themselves. The thorn in the flesh was the demonic spirit from verses 7 and 8. What the demonic spirit was doing to Paul was most likely the, these things found in verse 10. But the, the thorn in the flesh itself was the demonic spirit that God did not cause, but that God permitted to keep Paul humble, basically, to keep him on the narrow path. And like I said, mainly this was supposed to be about the, the um, the the graciousness of God and so the last thing I will say about this is Jesus says in the midst of these afflictions and this demonic attack he says my grace is sufficient for you my strength is made perfect in weakness his grace is sufficient for Paul he didn't need any more grace from Jesus to accomplish what he needed. The grace that he had was sufficient. This is God's, in, in this context, it refers to God's empowerment. Okay, so that's the first moral attribute of God for today that we looked at is his graciousness. The second one we're going to look at today is God's righteousness. And when we say God is righteous, what we mean is that God is absolutely and immutably right, not wrong. It means he's always right, he's never wrong. God's thoughts, choices, and actions are always right. He's above the law. Whatever he does is right by definition. He created the law. He created his moral law, and therefore he is above it. And everything he does is right. That's, a, that's one of the reasons why God can't lie. Because if God says, Steve is a woman, I'm going to grow breasts and my voice is going to change. <laughs> if God says Steve can walk, even though I'm sitting in a wheelchair, I'm going to get up and walk. If God says Steve is dead, even though I'm alive, I'm going to die. Whatever God says is. But God is righteous. God is always right. He's always righteous. There's never been a time and there never will be a time when he is not righteous. And we're going to look at two verses from the Old Testament that highlight this. The first one we're going to look at is Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. It's Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. And here is what it says. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. He is the rock. And that doesn't mean God is Dwayne Johnson. Don't misunderstand that. 
but uh, his ways are justice. He is a God of truth without injustice. God is not unjust. He does not promote injustice. And he is steadfastly against injustice because it is against who he is and one of his moral attributes. God loathed all forms of injustice wherever they may be found. The next verse we're going to look at is Psalm 119, which, by the way, just as a side note, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is the longest psalm in the Psalms, and it is the longest chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm 119 is. If I'm not mistaken, I think it has 176 verses. But right now, the one we're going to focus on is Psalm 119 and verse 142. If it will play. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. God's law is truth. His righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, meaning before he ever said, let there be light, he was righteous and his righteousness stood. At the very end of the age and into the eternal age, his righteousness will still stand. It will last as forever as he does and as forever as he is. God's existence and his righteousness exist at the same amount of time, just as all of his other attributes. The next one we're going to look at here is uh, we're now on to the, the third of six of God's moral attributes that we're going to look at today is God's justice. God's justice. I just got through telling you that God does not promote any injustice and that he is steadfastly against all forms of injustice. Why is that? Because the next moral attribute we're going to look at is his justice. God is just. That means when we say God is just, that means that he rewards righteousness and God punishes sin proportionate to his love of the former and his hatred of the latter. Let's say that again. God rewards righteousness and he punishes sin. Both of those are still true. It's not like in the Old Testament all he did was punish sin and in the New Testament all he does is reward righteousness. That's not how this works. God rewards righteousness and he punishes sin. And that's proportionate to his love of righteousness and his hatred of sin. And the four verses we're going to look at in relation to this. The first one is Psalms, so we're going to stay in the Psalms. And it's Psalm 89, which is one of one of my favorite psalms by the way. I don't know I don't know if it is my favorite, but it's one of my favorite. Psalm 89 in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Justice is part of the foundation of God's throne. If you were to look at God's throne in heaven, righteousness and justice would undergird it. Well, how can that be? Righteousness and justice are physical things. But we're talking about spiritual things here. And that's a different realm than we're used to. Um, or not that we're used to, but that it's a different realm 
then the natural eye sees and deals with with our normal five senses, if you will. Justice is a foundation of God's throne. The next verse we're going to look at is Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18. Numbers 1418. The Lord is long suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So again, we see God's forgiveness and mercy and at the same time he by no means clears the guilty how do we balance those and i already talked about that that's basically a repeat of what was talked about earlier in in one of these other attributes that we've already looked at um visiting the iniquity upon the third and fourth generation that can refer i believe to generational curses that can be on people as a result of different things in their lives um again that's not part of the main topic here and i don't want to get myself caught up in another yet another tangent that i'm you know i, I want to try to stick with what i'm doing so now we're going to go to numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 we're going to stay in the book of numbers Wish there wasn't this gap and it would just start playing. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent has he said and will he not do or has he spoken and will he not make it good if I were going to summarize that entire verse God's not a person he doesn't lie like people do. well God is a person in one sense but he's not a mortal human in the other sense um God's not like us. He doesn't lie. When he makes a promise or he gives a word, he keeps it. That's the gist of that. Now we're going to look at... Uh, do, 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 what's the last one? Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. It's Romans chapter 9. In verse number 14. This is the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. I don't have anything to add to that. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. It can't be much more clear than that. Um, so, let's see. We've done graciousness, righteousness, justice... The next one we're going to look at is God's mercifulness. God's mercifulness. God is merciful. What does that mean? It means that God compassionately either reduces the punishment of sin or he does not punish those who have opposed his will in their pursuit of their own ways. Now, I thought, just didn't we just read what God says? He doesn't overlook the guilty that's true 
So how then can he come along then and say he's compassionate and he sometimes overlooks the guilty? It sounds like a contradiction, right? No, what we're talking about here is the, the change in position. If I'm guilty of sin and I haven't confessed it, I haven't brought it before the Lord and confessed it, it's not if it's not covered by the blood of Jesus, First John one nine. If we forgive our, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we haven't done those things, then we're under the guilt and condemnation of God. When we do accept the blood of Jesus and allow Him to wash away that sin, God can then be merciful. God then can be compassionate. And even sometimes with the earthly consequences of sin, even when we should have the book thrown at us, so to speak, God can sometimes, through us, He can, through the Holy Spirit, can encourage us to not go for the throat, if you will, when it comes to seeking justice or when it comes to, like I said, throwing the book at somebody for something that they did, even though they may have violated God's law or human law, you sometimes God will show mercy through others in an attempt to woo the person to his ultimate divine mercy that he offers through Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at three passages with this. Again, we're going to stay in the Old Testament for this to look at God's mercy. And the first one we're going to look at is we're going to go back to the Psalms. It's a huge book. It's the biggest book in the Bible. So it would make sense that we would spend a lot of time there when looking at cross-references. We're going to be looking at Psalm 86 and verse 15. Again, that's Psalm 86 and verse 15. But you, O Lord are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. God is full of compassion, abundant in mercy. There's no sin, there's no depth of sin to which God's arms cannot reach to forgive. No matter how bad or how evil or how wicked, there's no depths to which we can sink that God cannot save us and forgive us. All we have to do is accept the gift of pardon that Jesus died to give us on the cross, taking our place. The next passage we're going to look at is the book of Lamentations. When's the last time you heard a sermon in the book of Lamentations? It's Lamentations chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is merciful. And his mercy renews, it says there. I am so, so very thankful for that. And I hope you are as well. The next passage we're going to look at is back to Psalms again. 
We're going to go to Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger. Now, some people, if you just read, do a surface reading of the Old Testament or even parts of the New, and you don't really look at the context, you just pull out a verse or somebody does, you might assume that God is a genocidal maniac who's just ready to start killing people. But the Bible says that God is slow to anger. That doesn't mean he never gets angry. That's the opposite side of the extreme, and it's also wrong. If somebody says, well, God is just so full of love that he never, ever gets angry, and we shouldn't either. That's not true either. The Bible's full of examples of God's anger reaching its full measure. Uh, there's a point where, uh, that's why the Israelites had to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years because the sins of the people of the land that they would eventually take over and that God would give to them had not yet reached their full measure, which warranted them being removed by God from that land. So they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years to also prepare them from the inside and get them to trust God and to allow their population to grow to the point that they would then, when, it was, when the fullness of time had come, for them to be able to come in and take that land. So God's God is slow to anger. It doesn't mean he never gets angry and his anger mm -hmm, it it can be pretty rough. But he's slow to anger. It's not like he like I said in another podcast recently, it's not like he's sitting up in heaven with lightning bolts just rubbing his hands together and oh oh I can't wait. Oh, I can't wait to zap these people. Oh, please, please sin so I can get you. Yeah, you did it. Bam. God's not like that. God is slow to anger. God is merciful. In fact, it's funny we should I should say slow to anger because the next um, moral attribute of God that we're going to look at for this podcast. We've done graciousness, righteousness, justice, mercy. And the fifth one here is that God is slow to anger. I might have jumped ahead a little bit there. I wasn't trying to, but I could have jumped. And I very well could have jumped ahead on that one. But God is slow to anger. What does that mean? It's a, it means that God is immutably patient. God is not short-tempered, as we might describe someone. Uh, God is not short-tempered. His anger is not intermittent, cyclical, or caused by some external sovereign agent like man's sin. Rather, it's his study and determined pressure on those who disobey him. And there are one, two, three, four, five verses that we're going to look at in regards to God being slow to anger. The first one we're going to go back to is Numbers chapter 14 and verse 18. In this Numbers 14, 18. And we've looked at, I said go back to this because we've already looked at it once. 
in another when we were looking at another of God's attributes when we were looking at God's justice but him being slow to anger and his justice are they work in tandem they're both equally true as we're going to see here as we listen to numbers 14:18 again the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And now we're going to go back to Psalm 86 and verse 15. Again, like I said, we're going to go back to Psalm 86 and verse 15. And again, this is going to be another repeat because we just saw this verse when we were looking at God's mercy. But it also applies to him being slow to anger. It only makes sense that being merciful and being slow to anger are kind of synonyms, right? Here we go. But you, O Lord, are God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. That word long-suffering we could define as being slow to anger. God suffers long before he unleashes his wrath. The next one we're going to is Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. So that should be very similar, of course, to what we just saw. Um, as uh, we covered that kind of in the, in the previous verse, but God repeats it here, just showing how much he really means it. Now Psalm 145 and verse eight. The wording of this one should sound very familiar because it's like exact it's pretty much exactly the same as 103.8. It's the Psalm 145.8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. Again, that, that wasn't an accident. The 103.8 and 145.8 are basically the same. It's, it's the same verse, pretty much. It's just repeated. 2 Peter 3.9 is the last one we're going to look at. Uh, for God's for God being slow to anger this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible because it shoots a dagger into the heart of the predestination idea that God elects some people to heaven and chooses some people to go to hell and that's just how it is and there's nothing wrong with that and there's no such thing as free will and all that stupidity and nonsense this shoots a dagger in that. Therefore, it's one of my favorite verses. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is long-suffering toward us. Oh, how God should have washed his hands of me before I was even an adult, back when I was a teenager. And how many times as an adult, he should have washed his hands of me and said, I'm done with this guy. But he's long suffering toward us. He's slow to anger. He gives chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. 
year after year after year after year. He put up with the wickedness and violence that was saturated the earth in the entirety of the world for 120 years from the time he told Noah to build the ark until it was time to commence with the flood. He gave he allowed that state of global evil to run rampant for 120 years while Noah built an ark on a planet that had not yet experienced rain you know, because before the flood, a mist came up from the ground, underwater springs from the fountains of the deep came up and watered the surface of the ground. They hadn't yet to experience rain on earth before. And yet, God, for 120 years, gave all those people abundant so many chances to repent and in the end only eight people out of the entire global population made it on the ark and escaped the flood along with the animals that did eight people out of the entire world population But God is long-suffering toward us. He gives us so many chances. Because he's not willing that any of us should perish. He does not enjoy or take pleasure in seeing one person going to hell, even though most people do. Most people choose to reject God and the offer of Jesus Christ. But God takes no pleasure in that. I already referenced Jesse Duplantis in his trip to heaven once. This actually happened back in 1988, but he just did a sermon about it. He's only spoken about it publicly a few times, and he did a book about it as well, but he's only spoken about it publicly a few times. One of the times that he did um, was just not that long ago, I don't think it was this past Sunday, but it's been within the last few weeks, and one of the few times he's mentioned his heaven experience. And one of the things that Jesus told him, and now look, I know some of you, you know, aren't big fans of Jesse Duplantis, probably have heard things in the news and whatever, and things about him you don't like, whatever, you know, airplanes and such and all that, you know, whatever. Um, I, I'm a fan of his, I like him, I think he's a, I think he's alright, I think he's a legit guy. I don't have a problem with that whole controversy thing. I know a lot of people get a you know, be up their hind in about it. I'm not one of them. But um, anyway, um, Jesse Duplantis, when his when he when his trip to heaven, again similar to what the Apostle Paul experienced in Second Corinthians 12, said that um, Jesus told him. He said, you know, when it talks about in the Bible, it says. Jesus will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. Revelation 21.4 He told Jesse, he said, those are my tears too. And Jesse was like, what do you mean? And Jesus said, well, the worst day of my life is still yet to come. The worst day ever hasn't happened for me yet. It wasn't the cross and the crucifixion. That was tough. That was hard. And, you know, he feared it so much that he 
Well, I mean, he, he, I don't know if he feared it, he, he dreaded it so much that he sweat drops of blood, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus said that wasn't his toughest day. The toughest day will be on the Day of Judgment when he has to tell all those people, all those people that he loves, all those people that he doesn't want to see go to hell. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He said that will be the toughest day that he ever experiences. So the tears that will be wiped away. People say there are no tears in heaven. That's not true. It says Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. If there's no tears in heaven, what's he wiping away? And he said, Jesus said that will be the toughest day that he ever experiences when he has to tell most of the people that he created to depart from him. He never knew them because of their sin and their wickedness and their refusal to repent and turn to him, which is all he ever asked for. The last um, moral attribute of God that we're going to look at, this will be our 18th of the attributes of God. We're looking at 24 in these four episodes. This is the last one for this third episode, and it's the 18th, is the wisdom of God. God is very, very wise, and that should be a duh, but nonetheless, it is one of God's attributes. God is wise. He's full of wisdom. It means that God plans perfect means and ends for his creatures. He fits things together for the sake of our destiny. He tells us the smart way to run our lives. Throughout Proverbs, for example, wisdom is contrasted with foolishness. You see that over and over and over constantly in the book of Proverbs. The contrast between wisdom and foolishness. And the first two, uh, the, the two verses that we're going to look at in regards to God's wisdom, the first one is the book of Isaiah, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. That is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God's understanding is unsearchable. He is perfectly wise. I mean, he literally knows everything. Not only everything that is, but everything that could have been that wasn't. You can't get much more wise than to literally be the know-it-all of the universe because God knows it all. He literally does. That's why the word, the term know-it-all is such an insult because there's only one that truly does know it all, and that's God. God literally knows it all. You can't get much more wise than that. The last verse we're going to look at for this podcast is Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20 about the wisdom of God. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. That was Daniel speaking. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. That's the reason for the name of my podcast and blog, Wisdom on Wheels, because I try to base everything in either God's word, which is the standard of truth, or in the search of truth that is not yet known. As far as, okay, I don't know this, uh, 
Now, again, the ultimate standard for all truth is the Bible, but there's still there's certain things. I mean, the Bible doesn't, uh, for example, the Bible doesn't tell you uh, who shot JFK. Um, which, by the way, going back to that heavenly vision of Jesse Duplantis again, or that heavenly trip, uh, he said he did see JFK there. And, you know, so talk about the long-suffering and mercy of God. But uh, anyway... Um, what, what was I going with that? Um, I don't, oh yeah, the wisdom of God, wisdom on wheels, and then the whole uh, how I came up with that name. The Bible doesn't tell us all the mysteries of the universe, it tells us what we need to know about God and what God reveals about Himself and history in the scriptures. But there are other things that you know we, you know, that we've discovered since then. And so wisdom on wheels is because of my wheelchair and it's the wisdom based in God's word and the search for truth, which is where wisdom comes. It comes from knowing and applying the truth. So that is the 18th attribute of God that we've looked at. There are six more. Um, we've done six in each of the last three podcasts. We've looked at and uh, the last six we're going to look at on the next podcast is the love of God, the goodness of God, God's wrath, his wrathfulness, God's truth, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, and the last one, God is jealous. Oprah Winfrey didn't like that. She said that was one of the things that kind of she didn't like about that about the Bible. It said that God is a jealous God. What kind of loving God would also be jealous? God is jealous. Not all jealousy is bad, by the way. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Jealousy. Not all, some jealousy is bad, and some expressions of jealousy are bad. But not all jealousy is bad. We're going to get into that tomorrow as well. The last six of the 24 attributes of God that we have been studying here on the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. That will be tomorrow. I'm Steve Johnson. Look forward to being with you then. You can email me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Thank you very much, and God bless. Bye for now.